So this year, um, I've been teaching only once a month. Uh, used to do Monday nights every week, but now I'm doing a whole other set of projects and just about to turn 72. So I'm kind of shifting the way that I'm using my time. Um, and in these once a month teachings, uh, started to go through what are called the ten paramitas, which sometimes are called the perfections of heart and mind. I take them to be the description of our, of our own true nature, our Buddha nature. And the initial teachings on them, when you read the cosmology, says that um, these qualities of heart and mind, which include generosity, patience, virtue, compassion, truthfulness, uh, determination, steadiness, wisdom, loving-kindness, all those nice qualities, they are cultivated over, to become really awakened, over 100,000 mahakalpas of uh, spiritual work, which is a lot of time. Each mahakalpa is described as the length of time it takes for a bird with a silk scarf in its beak dragging it across the top of the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. Um, and each time the silk scarf goes across the top, which only happens once every 100 years, that mountain is worn down by the scarf. And when the mountain is worn down all the way, that's one Mahakalpa. And you do that 100,000 times. So you hear that and say, okay, I'm working on it, right? Generosity, patience, uh, compassion, whatever. But it's, it seems daunting. Um, and the reason that it's talked about in that way, it's really talked about in a metaphorical way or a poetic way, is because it doesn't exist in time. You can't say, all right, I'm, you know, whatever it is, I'm on my 42nd thousand Mahakalpa and I've only got, you know, 60 or whatever to go. Um, it really speaks of something that's timeless. And because that's true, what it means is that those qualities which get awakened in us as human beings in the best of ways are already in us, they're already inherent in us, and that it's not in time. The question is not the future of humanity, but the presence of eternity. And to sit in meditation, as Aldous Huxley says, an idolatrous religion is one in which time is substituted for eternity. Progress, endless progress, demands human sacrifice on an enormous scale. And it's not that he's against progress per se, but he's talking about how we can live so much in the future that we miss where we are. We miss the sound of the child, which I'm very happy to hear. I love having babies in this room. You're more than welcome. Make any sound you want, you know. Um, and we miss the shifting of the light, you know, as we come toward twilight and all the deer and the coyotes that are up there and the bobcats are saying, oh, thank God the humans are gone. Now we have our place back, you know. <laughs> We got rid of the renters, and now we're back to uh, our own property. Um, and so the invitation of meditation and these teachings is to come into the reality of the present and, and the mystery of it, um, and the mystery of being a human being. Now, um, the 
paramita or the quality that I'd like to speak about tonight. We talked about in previous months uh, the quality of generosity and of um, virtue or kind of integrity and so forth. Uh, is the, the next one is called the paramita of wisdom. And it's a little odd to talk about because many of the others you can develop. I'm going to be practice generosity or forgiveness or I'm going to practice patience and so forth. It's best, you know, whatever you try to do. But how do you practice wisdom? And I think instead, as you listen, you have to sense that it's not something that you practice, but that you remember and that you know in yourself. And wisdom is of particular importance at this moment because we're living in a time of a lot of uncertainty, certainly globally and politically. Um, and there's continuing, there's huge waves of refugees and continuing warfare and climate disruption um, and racism and tribalism and these kind of things that are forces that we know in the human heart. Um, and we need to have ways to quiet our mind and tend the heart and figure out how do we navigate in these times. That's the external, but then there's all the internal things as well. A uh, couple of little things to begin with, and this really focuses in a certain way on the meditation itself. Um, in bullfighting, there's a place in the ring where the bull feels safe. If the bull can reach this place, he stops running and can gather his full strength. He's no longer afraid. It's the job of the matador, and then it says in parentheses, and the politician to know where the sanctuary lies and to be sure that the bull and the people do not have time to occupy their place of wholeness. I'm being a little playful with this. <laughs> Politics in every generation, not just this one, it works partly on getting people afraid. For generations it's been that way. This safe place for the bull is called the karencia. And for humans, the karencia is the safe place in our inner world when a person finds their karencia in full view of the matador, they are calm and peaceful, wise. They've gathered their strength around them. And that's, in a certain way, a description of meditation. What happened to you as you just sat actually doesn't matter very much because you'll have aches in your body, and moments of ease and relaxation, and then more aches, you know. And you'll have quiet, and then you'll have, oh, I forgot about this, and I'm also a little bit pissed off about that, you know. Let's try this again. Now I'm on again. For some reason it decided to turn off. Okay. Um, it's fine. It's on, off, you know, you're just there in the center, right? Hey.
Um, okay, great. So, in a way, in meditation, as I said, it doesn't matter. Just like when I'm talking here, sometimes you hear the words, and then sometimes the microphone doesn't work, or whatever. Um, but what I mean by that is that the content of experience isn't the point. Sometimes calm, sometimes you notice that you're agitated or restless or unfinished business of the heart comes. To be wise means to be able to be present with a loving awareness for your life. And that's the stuff of your human life. For some reason, I want to read a poem by Pablo Neruda, one of the great poets ever, in, and someone, you know, he writes about his work as a poetry, um, but it's really the work of language. And the reason I want to speak in this fashion is that um, there aren't really good words to talk about wisdom. It's like the finger pointing at the moon. There's something that you know intuitively that is wise, but what is it? What is this wisdom? Poetry, my starstruck patrimony. It was necessary to go on discovering hungry. Your earthly endowment, the light of the moon and the secret wheat. Between solitudes and crowds, the keys kept getting lost in streets and in the woods, under stones, in trains. The first sign is a state of darkness, deep rapture, rapture in a glass of water, body stuffed without having eaten, heart a beggar in its pride. Many things more, than, more that books don't mention, stuffed as they are with joyless splendor, to go on chipping at a weary stone, to go on dissolving the iron and soul to become the person who is reading until water finds a voice through your mouth. That is easier than tomorrow being Thursday, and yet more difficult than to go on being born, to find a strange vocation that seeks you out and which goes into hiding when we seek it out, a shadow with a broken roof and the stars shining through its holes. And maybe you don't understand many of those lines, and I don't understand some of them, although I love them, but you do get the shadow with a broken roof and the stars shining through its holes. And there's something ineffable about wisdom, and yet there's also something that we know about it. For when we see someone who's wise, it resonates in us, oh, this is wisdom. And those who are wise have clarity and thoughtfulness. They're considered and gracious, warm-hearted. They're easygoing with what comes and goes. They're somehow both intimate with life, present for it, and also able in some way to have a, a bigger, more spacious perspective. They can hold paradox. As we say, you need to remember your Buddha nature and your zip code, right? You've got these different dimensions of life, both of which matter. And this wisdom is not far away. In Zen, they put it this way. If you understand, things are just as they are. If you don't understand, things are just as they are. This is the immediacy of Zen. All right, let's try the immediacy of a new microphone.
All right, this is exciting. Hey, it works. We'll give it a try. All right. The Tao Te Ching, again, trying to put words on something that we know intuitively. If you don't realize the source or the Tao, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, this great mystery, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with, ever, with whatever life brings you, and even when death comes, you are ready. So it's this ability somehow to be present for the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life with a kind heart and a wise perspective. And so when we sit in meditation, the point isn't so much to have a particular experience, although there can be glorious experiences in which you become deeply silent and open to vastness and dissolve your body into light and have samadhi experiences and so forth. They're really cool. And those of you who have taken other sacred medicines may have experienced them in other ways, right? <laughs> and then those, you know, who've had the, the privilege of sitting with someone who's dying opens you to the mystery, or giving birth or sitting with someone giving birth, it's so mysterious, you know? Or walking high in the mountains, or listening to a piece of music that's so extraordinary, it takes you beyond yourself. We all know these in some very deep way. We know that we're not just here to toil, so to speak, and to check things off your to-do list and look on your device every few minutes to see, you know, who's contacted you. Wisdom. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, was about the wisest person I've ever met. And I've met a lot of very cool lamas and mamas and swamis and so forth, all in my industry, you know, and many wonderful ones, but he was about the wisest one. And his, his, the wisdom he had, he had a great sense of humor, and he just would name the way things are. Someone would come in and say, um, you know, they were really upset about something, and he'd say, you're angry. And they'd nod, and he'd say, yeah, whose fault is that? and just kind of point them back to where the anger, where does that anger come, where did it arise, you know? Or, um, you know, I was really sick, I had malaria, and I was in my little bamboo hut in the forest, and ah, terribly sick, and aching, and all these things, and so he came to visit me, and I was lying there on the floor, and sweating, and, you know, just lying on the robes I'd taken off, and he looked at me, and he said, Sick, huh? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I mean, that was his way. It's just this is the way it is. Hurts all over, huh? I said, yeah, it hurts all over. Makes you want to go home to your mother, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, just naming this is the way it was. And then he looked at me and said, this is suffering. Remember, the Buddha talked about suffering. Now you have it. This is suffering. He didn't say that Buddha part, but that was sort of the, the implication. This is dukkha. This is suffering. I nodded. He said, you know, we all experience it at some time. And malaria, we've all had it, the forest monks. Now we have some good medicine for it. I'll send the medicine monk over to see you to help you. But you can bear it, you know. You've done this. You know how to do this. And he just smiled and kind of tootled off, you know. 
And there was just something so immediate, this is the way things are, and it's fine. We can deal with it. And if it wasn't fine, then let's fix it or do something. It wasn't that he was passive about it, but his capacity to be present with the way things are um, was really, really wonderful. Um, yeah, because I remember one time a person came who wanted to give, she was the heir to the um, railroad fortune, the people who had started the railroads in Thailand, and government took over part of it, but anyway, she was very, very wealthy. Um, and she came and she was kind of full of herself. Oh, you know, I could give the money to a big school, or I could give money to these fancy temples in Bangkok, or, you know, I see you've got, you're training monks in a good way, maybe I should come and give some donation to your temple. And he was listening to it all, and I've done this, I built this and that, and so forth. And he listened, he was sort of appreciative. And she said, what do you think? He said, I think probably the best thing you could do would be to take a big bushel of that money and throw it off the bridge on the river that you came, you know, down the road there when you came to the monastery. Because um, it doesn't look like it's doing you much good, you know. <laughs> and we're all like, whoa. But the thing is, he didn't want anything. And he said it with a lot of amusement. I mean, no one ever said that kind of thing to her before. Um, and he wanted her to look at all the investment she had in her money. Um, and it was kind of wonderful to be with somebody who was that caring. I mean, that was a, there was something caring in it. He looked at her and he could see how she was caught up. And he said, yeah, you know, there's another way you could approach this, you know, which is a lot more liberating and free. So what is wisdom? You know, life is difficult. You know, this Zorbis has trouble. Life is trouble. Only death is nice, right? To live is to roll up your sleeves and get into trouble in some way or other. So it's not that you avoid suffering, but that there's a, a, there are different ways to approach it. Um, and every culture respects those who are wise. Uh, there's a wisdom of the body. And when you don't listen to the wisdom of your body, or for that matter, the wisdom of the body of the earth, if we take the body of the earth, the breaths you're taking were actually breathed by somebody else a few seconds ago over there, but they also dusted the top of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa and came across the Pacific. And before that, they dusted the Fukushima nuclear reactor, right? And the uh, coal plants in China and the, the thick air in Beijing. Um, and the fact that the body of the earth is connected, your body comes out of it, means that those who are wise pay attention to this interconnection. But equally, it means to pay attention to your own body. And one of the beauties of meditation is that we sit and quiet the mind and begin to listen deeply. And we begin to listen to our own experience. And the body is one of the things it's like taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, remember me? You know, and it hurts and it aches and whatever. You've been running me around for a while and it's not that you're meditating wrong when you get tension or pain in the body. It's just that your body is saying, okay, thank you for coming into the present and listening to me. It wants your attention because it will teach you wisdom if you, if you listen to it. And it doesn't mean you can't, you know, um, become a star athlete or climb mountains or push your body in certain ways, but even in those, the best, the best of those know how to listen 
to their body. Story in this new book of mine, No Time Like the Present, Where Are We? Mm -hmm. This is Sandra, a woman that I work with on a retreat who really needed to learn compassion because she, she had a lifelong issue, problem with binge eating. And she described it as struggling with this compulsion, wandering like a hungry ghost for a hundred years full of self-hatred. That was kind of her description of her experience because she couldn't stop and yet at the same time she also was so harsh to herself. And then she said, I believed as I sat and got quiet, I believed that food had an unparalleled capacity to bring satisfaction to my body and free me from suffering. Time and again I've reached for the food looking for it to do its magic only to have it turn on me, fail me, bring me untold physical and emotional suffering and shame. I became hypercritical of myself and my situation and my body and despaired. And freedom has come as I've learned to become more mindful and compassionate toward my own body and the intense discomfort I was trying to run away from. I started to find out that I could tolerate it through meditation. And then I could recover more quickly and less painfully from bouts of compulsive binging as I stayed even a little bit more kind to my body and present with the pain, present with my pain. Instead of eating even more just to try and avoid the effects of having eaten too much and the remorse of having done it again, I would actually watch myself mindfully start down that sad old path. And as a loving awareness grew, I realized, oh, I don't have to do this. And self-compassion grew. I'm deeply grateful for the compassion that has rescued me from the realm of the hungry ghosts. I mean, and that's a, a little bit of an extreme case, if you will, but not that extreme, because we live in a culture that, you know, other than kind of glorifying beautiful bodies or something, mostly keeps you busy um, all the time, you know, and doing stuff, and doesn't actually allow you to enjoy this beautiful body and to tend it. You understand what I'm saying, yes? So to quiet yourself in meditation, you come into relation with your body, and then then you learn whether your body is carrying the wrong thing, you know, whether you haven't paid attention or you're do, doing things in the wrong way. Um, it will teach you, it will tell you. I remember Ajahn Chah at one point, um, we were walking and he pointed to a great big out boulder in a field, not quite as big as Spirit Rock, but a great big boulder, and he turned to us and he said, is that boulder heavy? And of course, I said, being American, yes, of course it is, sir, master. And he smiled and he said, not if you don't pick it up. <laughs> and there was so much teaching in that little bit of remark, you know, about what are, we, what are we trying to carry and that we don't have to do that. So wisdom allows us to listen deeply to the body. It also allows us to listen deeply to the heart and to one another. What is... What do we need? Um, what does our heart long for? Um, what needs to be forgiven? 
what needs a tenderness of care? Um, what is the love that we need to express in the world that's our gift? Um, the heart will teach you. There's a conversation you have as you get quiet. You don't even have to talk to it a whole lot. You just ask, what's cooking? You know, Tell me, how are you doing in there? And you can listen. There's a book that I quoted some months ago um, that is titled something like um, if, I, if My Teacher Knew. And it's in the handwriting of second and third graders, you know, like those books you buy that ca by the cash register. And it says, I wish my teacher knew that my dad works two jobs and I don't see him much. And I was giving a thing of teaching to hundreds of educators. And I said, you know, you do have to teach these kids math and reading and various skills. I said, but you also, and you know it, have to tend to their hearts. Because if there's a third grader who comes in and their parents are in the middle of a divorce or they're, you know, their father is or mother is really sick with cancer or something like that, they can't learn math until they feel that they're held in some safe way. I wish my teacher knew that I don't have pencils at home to do my homework. I wish my teacher knew that my mom doesn't sign my reading log because she can't read. I wish I, my teacher knew that after my mom got diagnosed with cancer, I've been without a home three different times this year. I wish my teacher knew that I'm smarter than she thinks. Isn't that nice? I wish my teacher knew that my little brother gets scared and I get worried when he wakes up, especially the loud sounds and the guns that he hears at night. I wish my teacher knew that I love animals and I would do anything for my animals. I would love to work at the SPCA so I could help animals get adopted. And so this is the, this is the wisdom that looks into the eyes of another being and sees them, or listens to our own heart, sees their heart, not just who they present themselves to be, but something deeper and more beautiful. And so wisdom has different qualities to it. Um, it has a spacious quality of openness, a kind of graciousness. So the image from the Buddha is if you put a spoon of salt in a cup of water, it tastes very salty. And if you put the same salt in a pond or a lake, the water is still clear and delicious. And in the same way, if you expand the sense of space and time, if you let your mind and heart become spacious, there comes a kind of natural wisdom that sees the seasons as they turn. This is, again, from The Tao Te Ching, there's a time for being ahead and a time for being behind, a time for being in motion and a time for being at rest, a time for being vigorous and a time for being exhausted. The master sees things as they are without trying to control them. She lets them come and go their own way and resides at the center of the circle. It's like the verse from Ecclesiastes, to everything there's a season Time to be born and a time to die, to plant and to reap, to weep and time to laugh and so forth. From the perspective of the wise heart, 
we get quiet and spacious and say, yes, this is the season we're in. Now we had all this rain and the wildflowers are fantastic and the animals are really happy. Last year it was a drought and that was the season we're in. And we can respond and tend, wisdom also responds. But first, it just opens to say, this is the way things are unfolding now in a spacious and a gracious way. And in this kind of gracious way, there's nothing that you have to do to really fix things, although you respond and tend the world beautifully, but it's that place that says, this is the way life is. And those who are wise can look at it and say, yeah, this is, this is the way that it is. Again, from Ajahn Chah, my teacher, an old woman came to see him. Came from a nearby village. She told him that she could only stay a short while. She had to get back to someone who was sick in her family. And could he give her a little essence of teachings? And he looked right at her. And he said, listen, there's no owner of all this. You think you own this body? You just rent it. You know, you think you own your thoughts? No one to grasp and own, no one to be young or old or good or bad, just the elements of life playing out. When you understand, you'll, under, you'll know that you were never born and you can never die. Those who speak of death are speaking the language of children in the language of the heart of the Dharma. There's no such thing. When we carry a burden, it's heavy. When there's no one to carry it, there's no problem in the world. Not a problem in the world. Don't look for good or bad or right or wrong or anything at all. Don't do anything. Nothing more. Just be here for the life that, for life as it is. This was his kind of pith or essence teaching. And it was, you know, he was saying to this woman who was you know, saying, I need these teachings before I die. And he said, all right, look to see, who are you really? Are you this body? Are you the feelings? Are you the thoughts? All the things that come and go, those are the temporary things. Or can you rest in the spacious wisdom that is loving awareness, that is who you really are? You are awareness. That's what's listening to these words and seeing the colors that your eyes pick up. You are the spirit that was born into your body. You are this loving awareness. And then all this stuff appears on the screen and some of it's difficult and some of it's pleasant, as he says. You don't own it, really. You have those experiences as part of the blessing or the gift or the difficulty of being a human being. And it certainly asks for your tenderness and understanding but in the end, uh, Diamond Sutra says, like a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, an echo, a rainbow, a dream, or in the Dhammapada, the same verses. Um, we know this. You know, things appear for time and then they vanish. What happened to Y2K? Remember that? 17 years ago, it was a big deal, right? It's back with the pyramids, you know, and Machu Picchu, the people who built it, and, and, you know, it's also back with the Middle Ages and things. It's back in the void. It's, it's gone. What happened to last year? Remember the election last fall? Oh, yes, you do. Right, whatever your political point of view, um, that one's over, 
Now we've got a new day and a new moment, a new experience. And you can't grasp it. It appears we dance with it. We engage with it. We're part of it. It's us. And then it vanishes. And you are the loving awareness, the witness to it all. So knowing this is an invitation to that which is timeless. And sitting in meditation, you come back to the timeless mystery. And from it, you can also see then how things work, the laws. You see the law of karma, which basically says, in its simplest fashion, it's a, an inner law, that depending on how you act, that will produce the way you become and the way people and the world responds to you. So if you act of, out of anger a lot, it will affect your body in different, and it will affect the way the world responds to you. If you act out of love, no matter what the circumstances, it will affect your own being, your own body, and it will affect the way the world responds to you. So my teacher, Mahagosananda, who was the Gandhi of Cambodia, and spoke 15 languages and came to the UN as a peacemaker during the Cambodia, after the Cambodian Holocaust and all kind of celebrated in the world. Um, he spent most of his time leading peace walks through what had been the killing fields, taking people, hundreds of thousands of refugees on foot back to their villages. He said, you can't ride in a bus or the back of a truck and go back. You have to reclaim your land. And so he said, we have to walk and each step we have to recite the prayers of loving-kindness. With each step it was, and he'd have a bell and he'd be chanting, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And they'd, they'd be walking through the jungles or the killing fields, and then he'd start to chant again, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And it doesn't matter you know, what century we're in or what difficulty we're in. This is what wisdom sees when you quiet the mind and tend the heart. You see how you see conditions, anger and hatred and so forth brings a certain kind of suffering and love brings relief from that. Hatred never ends by hatred. You start to see the truth of things. And how we think and how we tend this heart and mind um, creates the, the world for us, our world, and also, as human beings, creates our collective. If we see through the lens of racism, we create enormous suffering. And yet it's really a fiction. You know, it's completely made up. Just like money is made up, you know. I pull out a a bill from my pocket. Oh, I'm going to digress. Do I do, wait, can I, should I do this? Yeah, why not? Okay. So in here, you know, I could pull out that $100 bill I keep. And, you know, it's just a green piece of paper, but we all agree. You all know it's just a fiction. Okay, this one has this number on it. It's worth more than the one that has a different number on it. This one, um, with this little Burmese sticker from the airline, I went, when I was in Rangoon leading a trip to raise money for clinics and HIV work and women's support in rural areas, all kinds of beautiful things for this foundation, Partners Asia. So a close friend said, you have to go see this great psychic in Rangoon. 
Um, I said, okay, I'm game for anything. And they really like psychics in Burma. It's a big thing. So I go to see this woman. She's quite interesting. She's a dwarf. She's tiny, um, and she's deaf, but her sister's there, and they have some kind of language where she touches her sister's skin, and, and so she speaks through her fingers. And so I'm sitting there, and I paid $100, right, which is a lot of money in Rangoon. And she lives in a very nice house, so she's doing fine as a psyche. That's okay. But she's famous, okay? And I'm sitting there and waiting for her to give me a reading, and she said, I'm not going to read for you. And I said, why not? She said, you don't trust me. And she was sort of half right. I said, oh, I trust you, I trust you, okay. I believe, you know, Tinkerbell, I believe, right? So she says, take out your wallet. I think, okay, here we go, right? All right. So I put my wallet on the table. And she says, now here, and she grabs a piece of paper she can write, and she writes, B, one, two, four, four, five, seven, three, nine, seven, six, five, seven, C. And she says, now look in your wallet in the middle of the bills there. And I open my wallet, and I leaf through the $20 bills, and in the middle is a bill, and that's the number on it. And I go, okay, all right, I believe. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> she told me some good things. I said, so, you know, how about the market? Can you time the market? She said, no, no, I don't do that. But she did talk of my daughter and various other things like that. Anyway, this world is a lot more mysterious than you than you were led to believe. Um, and a lot of how we operate is made up by our ideas about it. But the wise can step back and be more spacious and say, yeah, that's a certain way people think, but in our heart we really know something different. You know, whether it's the kind of uh, prejudice or racism that I talked about, or whether it's all kinds of other um, ideas that create suffering, when we become quiet and still, we see the law of joy and sorrow. That joy and the possibility of living with joy is here for us, but that the truth of sorrow is that greed and hatred and ignorance, this is the Four, 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 four Noble Truths, there is suffering in the world, and that most of human suffering, not pain, because we all get old or we all die, that's, that's part of what's natural, but most of human suffering is made by human mind and heart, and it's constructed out of greed, and out of hatred and fear, and out of ignorance. And the opposite of those, um, when we let go of greed, and let go of hatred, and the contraction of fear, and all of those things, and grasping and confusion, um, when we can hold the world with compassion and tenderness, then those qualities shift to love, and generosity, and clarity, and understanding. And that brings happiness. And it's not actually that complicated. Wisdom is not a complicated thing. It's an honest seeing this is the way the world is. And it's a remembering in you, because you know it, that it's possible to live in this world. Oh, thank you. You can cry. It's OK. We appreciate you being here. Not many weeks old, your first Dharma talk, your second, actually, I know. Now you're becoming really schooled in this. We welcome you. Yeah. So there's something about wisdom that can tolerate the tainted glory of humanity, the beauty of it and the suffering of it, and say, yes, this is the way it is, and 
I see what causes suffering, wisdom sees it, and also sees the possibility of joy and inhabits it because you're not here just to suffer. You've been loyal to your suffering for too long. You have been. And what's true when the Dalai Lama laughs and Archbishop Tutu laughs and so forth, it's called the laughter of the wise. Say, oh, it's possible to have a joyful heart and to plant seeds of beauty and well-being wherever you are. Even in the midst of suffering and, and difficulty and sorrow, um, that's possible. This is Elie Wiesel, who won the Nobel Prize, um, saying, suffering confers neither, neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how you use it. If you use your suffering to become depressed, to increase the anguish of yourself or others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall understand that suffering can elevate human beings. God help us to bear our suffering well. And to do that well means to, to acknowledge, to hold the suffering of life, the enormous suffering, with compassion and know that it's not the end of the story. That what's true for you and for human beings is a freedom and a joy that is also possible no matter what circumstance you're in. When Nelson Mandela walked out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with so much graciousness and forgiveness and understanding, he changed South Africa, but he changed the whole imagination of the world. So wisdom is present for this mystery. It sees clearly what causes suffering. It doesn't try to figure it out so much as um, the point is more not so much to understand it deeply, but to be in the state of wonder. Isn't it amazing? At wonder and, and, and love for it, you know? It's such an extraordinary thing um, that you exist. And that, you know, we're on this particular planet at a certain distance from the sun and that water, water, it's an amazing thing. Water is one of the few elements that, um, first of all, within our temperature range goes from solid to liquid to gas. Also, a really interesting thing about water is that when it goes from liquid to solid, the solid is lighter than the liquid. It's a really peculiar thing, because mostly that's not the way it is. When something gets solid, it becomes more dense. If that were true, all the ice would sink to the bottom of the oceans, right? And it would start to pile up. We would have frozen oceans. But we happen to live on this extraordinary planet that's friendly to you. It is. If, if, you know, if life didn't approve of you, you wouldn't still be here. Somehow you're being approved of, right? And it's remarkable, says Walt Whitman. I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars, and the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven, and the cow crunching grass with depressed head surpasses any statue, and a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. A mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. He had a way with words, that fellow. <laughs> but he points to something that also wisdom allows us to see, which is to rest in mystery, so that we tend it and love it and appreciate it. Um, but it's so much bigger than the, 
little stories we have about it. Wisdom also has a responsive quality to it. And when you learn in the Sanskrit or Pali that word for, for mindfulness, which I've been calling loving awareness tonight, sati sampajanya, one part is the loving attention or loving awareness that we bring to see the way things are. The second part, sampajanya, in this compound word is, um, means a wise response. So we tend to think about wisdom or even mindfulness as some kind of passive thing. Okay, I'm going to sit here and become mindful and then everything will take care of itself. It doesn't. I mean, it will take care of itself while you're sitting there, I promise you. And you can even turn off your devices for a while um, and it'll all be there waiting for you. You don't have to worry. You're not missing anything. Um, but wisdom has both the clarity, like a mirror, it sees what's there, and then it has a responsive nature to it. We could call that the, the wedding of wisdom and compassion. And in one great Buddhist text, after you awaken, let me see if I can find the, the, the passage, it says, and now you've freed the heart from attachment and fear, and attachment doesn't mean you don't love or care for things, but you're not grasping them in a way, because you know that everything comes and goes. You tend it, you love it, you care for it. And now, the, now that the heart has been freed, there is born in you exceeding compassion for all those living creatures who do not realize the freedom that is the essence of their own hearts and minds. And you'll spend your life working for the sake of others because they are a part of you, but all your meditations have cleansed away any idea that these others are in any way separate than your own heart and mind. And so there comes as you quiet and as you see clearly, somebody falls down, you help them up. Somebody's hungry, you give them food. You know, a child's crying and you pick them up and walk the baby or whatever it happens to be. Not because, oh, now I'm a wise person or I'm a caring person, but because it's part of who you are. In the most essential and beautiful way, your heart wants to do this. And it doesn't mean that then you go around and try and fix everything in the world. It's not your job to fix the whole world. That would be, how to say it, a tiny bit egotistical, right? <laughs> Just a little tiny bit. It's your job to respond to or tend with your particular gifts and capacities to what you can touch, to what you see and hear. And for each of us, it will be different. We each have different gifts to give that allow this to happen. But the heart then responds. Um, and this is a part of wisdom. When Ramdas went to his guru, Neem Karoli Baba, and said, how do I um, find enlightenment? And Neem Karoli Baba said, it's simple. Love people and feed them. And Ramda said, no, no, I asked about enlightenment. <laughs> and Neem Karalabhi said, yes, and I answered, love people and feed them. Because this is a dimension of the awakened heart. When you see clearly, then you see the sorrow and you respond with compassion. You say, there's another possibility. There is another way. And it doesn't have to be, again, a grim duty. Um, this is Molly Ivins who was um, New York Times columnist for a long time and a 
you know, journalist in Texas and a very much of a, a, a social activist um, who died a few years ago, and she wrote, so keep fighting for freedom and justice, beloveds, but don't forget to have, have fun doing it. Be outrageous, rejoice in all the oddities freedom can produce, and when you get through celebrating the sheer joy of a good fight, be sure to tell those who follow how much fun it was. And I think this is really important information. <laughs> Whatever your particular political view at this, time, this uncertain time, um, to not bring the fear that's out there into your own heart and the uncertainty, um, and to not, not use it in a way to dwell on anger or hatred or reactivity, but to bring a spirit of artistry and joy and of the possibility of freedom that you see in those who are wise that really lives in you as well. And then, when you trust your wisdom, you can speak of peace in wartime. You can speak of tolerance even among those who are racist. You can, and you find the right way to do it. You know, it's not like blaming somebody, because all of that is just ignorance, and it's painful. And you see the pain of it, and the pain that it creates for that person, and the pain they create for others, whatever it happens to be. And you say, you know, uh, tenderly, yes, this is so, but there, there's another way we could do this. And there really is, and you know it. I mean, I'm waiting. We've done away with slavery mostly, although I went... Um, a couple of days ago, I was uh, at a benefit that I was part of for an organization called CAST, Coalition um, uh, Against Slavery and Trafficking, or to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking. And this was a great big, you know, 500 people in a fancy ballroom raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for this work in Los Angeles. And um, the mayor was there and spoke and gave an award to a good friend of mine who's part of that coalition and other people that I've worked with in that. Um, uh, and um, what's true is that uh, until a hundred years ago or, or less, slavery was an accepted thing in most parts of the world. It's okay. We can have slaves. Then it was abolished in most places, but there still are people enslaved here and elsewhere. There's still you know, some millions of them around the world, so we have to know that and tend it and do what we can. But it's not in human consciousness that slavery is okay anymore, generally. It simply isn't. It's changed. I'm waiting for that and working for when we change our consciousness about war. It seems like a pretty crude way to solve conflicts, you know? I mean, when you have the kids in kindergarten who are whacking each other with blocks, you say, use your words, right? That's pretty much what you want to say to the, you know, world leaders as well. Could you use your words, please, you know? Pull bank the tanks and the missiles and things. And it's possible. That's the amazing thing. And part of it is going to take our human imagination. There'll always be conflict. The wise know that we will have differences. But there are ways to listen to one another and to solve conflict that don't necessarily involve violence. So those who become wise speak truth even in times of injustice. They offer kindness even when it's not visible around them. And not in some fancy way, but because it's who you really are.
It just comes out of you in the deepest and most beautiful way in this mystery. looking at all these stories that I brought. There's also something courageous about wisdom, not because you're a courageous person, but because somehow as you sit with yourself, with your own measure of tears and sorrow and your own longing and your own beauty and your own mistakes, they say a Zen master's life is one continuous mistake. So, you know, get used to it, basically. Um, as you sit with forgiveness and tenderness and so forth, you, you also become able to then respond with what the situation calls for. I had a friend who came and she said, every time I go home to my family in Baltimore, I get in conflict with them. And she had trouble because she'd actually gone to uh, India and spent a couple of years as a, as a Buddhist nun. And they thought that was like the weirdest, worst thing. They were kind of evangelicals and she saved her head, shaved her head and became a nun. It was all terrible. She'd go back and she'd try to talk to them about what she did and they'd hate her for that. You know, she, Finally, she got a little wiser. She said, my parents hate me when I'm a Buddhist, but they love me when I'm a Buddha. So she got that part going okay. Um, and I said, listen, let's be practical about it. You know, you're going there wishing that they would understand you and so forth. They're not. Give up on that. I said, what do they do when you are there? What are they, their, their evenings like? They drink beer and they watch sports on TV mostly. Okay. I said, go home. Drink some beer. <gasps> yeah. Watch the damn sports. You know, get into it. And don't stay very long. Like two days maybe is enough. Two, three days she went, had a much better relationship. It's not that complicated. It's not rocket science, you know. Or my teacher Deepama in Calcutta, who was quite poor, an amazing, wonderful yogi and great, you know, kind of saint. Um, going to see her, she would say, how is your mother? You know, that was one of her. It was not, how's your meditation? How's your mother? Um, you know, and there was a friend of mine whose parents really did not want this young man to be in India. It was back in those days when it wasn't quite as fashionable, whatever, and it scared. And he wrote home on those little blue air letters, remember those? You know, and maybe three months later, I'm still here, still alive, no email, right? And he said, oh gosh, my parents are so upset that I'm here doing this. And she said, wait, and she went under her mattress and pulled out 100 rupees, which was a lot of money for her. And she said, go buy a gift for your mother, you know. And that was her teachings. She was really wise. And she said, buy a gift for your mother. The skillful means of the heart, of knowing how to respond, whether it's in a broader way in the society around or in the most intimate ways of the people close to us. Um, let's see what time it is. Yeah. Maybe one more story and then a little reflection for you. I don't know if this is the right story. We'll see. 
It's from a wonderful new book by Frank Ostaseski, who was here last month. Hmm. I guess I'll tell it. Um, it's, yeah, it's a story that Frank, who does all this hospice work and who is here, talks about um, being called to the home of a family whose seven-year-old daughter had died. You know, and this is the place where wisdom really matters when somebody's going through something like that. You seek out someone wise because you don't know how to make, what to make of it. And that person who's wise says, it was their time, you know, whatever thoughts you have about it and however you wish it, this was their karma, this was their life, this was their time. And now you have to offer blessings. So he went to the house and he said, there was so much grief that um, they didn't know what to do. And they were just there weeping and they went over to the little girl's room um, and he said, I went over and, and I kissed her head kissed their forehead and the parents broke into tears because while they cared for her for, with great love and attention, nobody had touched her since she died. It wasn't the fear of the body, but it was the fear that the grief would be so unleashed if they touched their daughter. And he said, he sat with them for a time and he said, you know, in every culture there's something important to do and maybe we could do it together. Let's wash her body. Would you do that? And so the parents got warm water and put rose petals in it and did all those kind of things and lavender. And they moved slowly in towels and little by little they started at the back of the head and moved down. And then they would tell a story about something that this little girl had done when she was five or six and all the things that they loved. And they would weep and grieve and they'd go back to it and care for every little scratch on her body and then count all the toes and so forth, and it was both enormously difficult to watch and extraordinarily beautiful to watch because there was so much love in the room. Um, and the real question was, will I be able to bear this as a parent? Will I actually be able to live through this in some way? And this was like Braille. There wasn't some big, wise answer, okay, it was her time. But it was, can we be present and touch this hand that we've loved and touch this body? And can we bless her and let her go? And something, there's something really deep about wisdom um, that's asked of you if you are to live in this world um, as the wise person that you are. So let your eyes close for a moment. You don't have to change your posture. This is only a couple minutes. As I said, you're weird enough. Just sit the way you are. Okay. And reflect on some difficulty that you face in your life. It might be quite personal in your immediate family, or it might be at work, or it might be broader, something that just aches in your heart that's cultural or communal or collective or global.
but it's something that you struggle with. And as you bring that to heart and mind, now let yourself imagine, think of, remember one of the wisest people you've ever met or heard of. This wonderfully wise being. You've met people who are wise. You know what they're like. Spacious and calm and infinitely kind. And you picture this very wise being. It doesn't have to be the wisest, but one of them. And imagine or sense that somehow they could come and show you how they would handle this difficulty or remind you. How would they do it? And you can picture them responding in your family or at work or in the community or with this difficulty in the world. You say, what should I do? How do I respond? How do I hold this? And they lean over very gently, touch you kindly, and whisper into your ear a few words of wisdom. Listen, imagine, sense. Just what you need. Just the wisdom you need to hold this situation. Hear it, think of it, imagine it, picture it, any way you can. And then sense yourself as that wisest being. This is something you too carry. You already understand. You are loving awareness. And when you remember this, you see with the eyes of wisdom and the heart of compassion, you know how to do this. With all the joys and all the sorrows, you become the wise one. Rest in this wisdom. Trust it. It is your own true nature. It is home. So I hope something of this evening reminded you of something of that which is beautiful in your own heart, of your own wisdom and your own courage, because that's what the world most needs from us at this time, and maybe always does. And the beautiful thing is you have that to offer. So thank you for coming this evening. I so much appreciate your Oh, you were on your good behavior. That's kind of nice, you know. Um, I also 
appreciate the kind of care and support many in this room have given to Spirit Rock and to creating sacred places where we can remember what matters to us in practice. Please come again to a class or a day long or a retreat or whatever would serve you. Um, thank you and good night.